Welcome to Stories That Stick, a podcast series about the stories that shape us. And it was the first time that I understood that my gayness meant danger. Not everybody was going to accept me, but also I found that this father's love was really moving. It's something I felt I was missing. Hey guys, it's Ade here, your host for Stories That Stick. Now, sorry for the delay in getting this episode out. We did have one ready for Tuesday, but the audio got corrupted and, well, that's life. Now, prior to introducing today's guest, please know that we are now recording remotely. So if you'd like to be featured on the show, simply get in touch via social media. We're on Blackticulate across all major social media platforms or email us at contact at blackticulate.com. All we ask is that you're black and positively empowering our community through your actions, be it your brand, your product and or service. Speaking of which, our guest on today's show, Josh Rivers, is doing exactly that with his podcast called Busy Being Black, where he centers the stories of black and brown queer people thriving at the intersections of their identities. On the show, Josh shares some of the stories that have made an impact on him, from Dinosaurs, Oprah, Matthew Shepard, Bayard Rustin, and many more. Guys, if you do Google Josh Rivers, you'll note that he had a very public dismissal at Gay Times. So we do talk about that too, but more specifically about the positive lessons that came from this. If you're brand new to the show, please note that we always start every conversation talking about death. So if this is a triggering topic, then please do skip approximately one minute ahead. Now, before we do go, we always do ask this and please, please do do it if you can. Review the show, share it, comment, subscribe, because it does help us grow and we're very grateful for it. So without further ado, let's bring you to the episode with Josh Rivers. Hey Josh. Hi. You've mentioned you have heard a couple of episodes, so you're possibly familiar with the format, but specifically how we start. Mm, I am. Well, we start with the subject, death. Nice. So how do you feel about death? I don't feel any certain way about death. I, I think it's something that we don't talk enough about in modern society. We know that death is going to happen. So what are we doing with our lives that has impact while we're alive too, not just after we've passed on? Well, Josh, let's talk about that. What are we doing with our life? <laughs> and... In order to do that, let's start on your first chapter, which is the first decade. Zero to ten. Any fond memories? Any stories? What was going on around you? I was a precocious, if reclusive, child. Um, one of my earliest memories is me interviewing my sister's dolls as if I were Oprah. Okay, well, hold on, wait a minute. <laughs> First and foremost, you have got a lovely way with words that you didn't interview your sister or any of the family members? No, it was just the dolls. Again, like precocious but reclusive. So I was good in public spaces, but then at home, I think I tend to really keep to myself. Right. I think sometimes it's a real struggle for me to think about particularly wildly happy moments in those first 10 years. Right. What I will say is when my parents divorced, I was living with my dad 
And I think I had a great time then. He used to take me to the shop every Saturday to pick up my subscription to a dinosaur magazine, which also included toy dinosaurs. So that's one of the happier things I remember. But immediately after that, all these kind of other more negative things start to flood in. Okay, well, we don't have to pry too deep, not unless you don't mind speaking about them. I'm a relatively open book. What do you mean then when you say these negative things? So I remember shortly after dinosaurs, I was at the park on my own, of course, and um, these white boys stabbed a Coke can with um, a gold knife and said, this is going to be you, nigger. I remember I ran home (laughs) to my mom and she was enraged. So she kind of dragged me out of the house to this young boy's father's house and kind of laid into him. Um, There's that that floods in. There was the kids who threw a helmet at my bike and I flew over the handlebars and busted my knees. Um, Being chased from school, being teased at school for hanging out with the girls. I don't know, it's a lot. There wasn't a great deal that I enjoyed. Yeah, no, fair enough. So you clearly passed that. I mean, let me not put words in your mouth. Let's actually figure out how have you navigated the fact that if you look in your past, it wasn't necessarily as fun or happy as you'd have liked. I try to look back on my childhood as pragmatically as possible. My mom had me when, I, when she was 21, my sister when she was 23, my dad was 26 when I was born. I can't even remember most of my 20s. I could never have handled all of that when I was in my 20s. And I think I don't want to carry around with me any sort of resentments, which is not saying that I don't, but I don't want to. And so part of my reconnecting with my, particularly my dad over the past couple of years has been to say, you know what, you did the best that you thought you could do. And that's okay. I'm not going to harbor resentments about that. Well, yeah, that's a, a positive outlook because fundamentally, and I think you possibly talk about this, about the notion of harboring negativity mm. and how it serves Well, it serves no one, really, especially yourself. Especially yourself. Am I wrong in saying this? Are you of dual heritage? Yeah. My mom's white British, my dad's black American. And the black side of my family is generations and generations African American. Our lineage goes back at least until the 1700s in Tennessee, right? So we've been on American soil for a very long time. And my um, grandfather had a church. So I grew up, you know, spending summers with my family in Texas. And um, anyway. Don't anyway that. (laughs) I'm really there now. I'm really seeing where you're growing up. Well, so, you know, I spent my Sundays over the summer with my family and at this church, you know, and, and kind of taking in all of the black church theology and the communion that that came about after church was over, right? The kind of two, three hour long lunches and (laughs) (laughs) granddaddy praying. Oh, that's a good memory actually. So my grandfather would pray before lunch. And my dad is one of five children. So we would all be standing in a circle, waiting for the food, um, waiting to eat. And granddad would say, "Um, all right, let's pray. And my dad, being the eldest, would chirp up and say, remember the five B's, dad. And then everyone would say, be brief, brother, be brief. (laughs) (laughs) So in this decade, any race relation conversations? No, 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 no. (laughs) Not at all. I didn't. The first conversation I had with my dad about race was when I was 12. 
I was being bullied by the black boys. I didn't know why. And so I remember I came home to my dad and I said, I just don't understand why these black boys don't like me. And he grabbed my wrist and turned it over and said, you see that? And I was like, no. He said, you're a house nigger. I'm a field nigger. And that was the extent of the conversation. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Wow. That was okay. it. But surely, I say surely, forgive me, that's me projecting. Um, was that enough for you? No, I mean, it didn't, it didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Um, I do remember thinking that it was so stupid. But of course, when you get older, you realize that it's beyond the individual, right? It's, it's bigger than, yeah. you know, these, these 12-year-old kids who don't really know why they don't like each other, but they don't. <laughs> yeah. Something about you ain't right, boy. <laughs> so, yeah. And so I, I remember... And, Josh, are you nervously laughing? Yeah, of course. Like many people, I laugh in things that are sometimes hard to deal with. Fair enough. You were reading a lot, you said. Mm. Particularly like dinosaur books? No, no. <laughs> Dean Kuntz, actually. Who? Dean Kuntz and Stephen King. These kind of big canonical, you know, horror authors. I've always been an advanced reader. English and language, I was always very fascinated with. Were you writing at that age? Your own stories? No, I didn't start like poetry until about 14. Well, let's then go into your next chapter. But I do feel like we are potentially missing something here in this decade but maybe it'll come throughout the conversation <laughs> yeah it's also it's not very queer to go linear no is it not <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> i wasn't familiar it's too straight <laughs> it's too straight noted josh you've already spoken about a few things that definitely shaped who you are today but yeah who were you where were you paint pictures i guess um, high school was ended up being very good for me, socially at the very least. I was a popular kid. I, you know, hung out with the cheerleaders. I won best dressed and stuff like that. So I had, I had a good time. I came out in high school. I felt totally supported by my peers. Um, yeah. So we normally send out three questions for our guests to fill prior to us recording. And you wrote Matthew Shepard. Why? Um... We had this project where we had to do an essay and a reading based on something that was important to us or moved us. And so in 1997, Matthew Shepard, a young gay boy from Wyoming, was beaten up and left for dead. And his father gave a very powerful closing remarks at the trial of Matthew Shepard's killers. And I remember just crying my eyes out at the way this father expressed how much he missed his son and how much he regretted not expressing that love for him sooner. And it was the first time that I understood that my gayness meant danger. Not everybody was going to accept me, but also I found that this father's love was really moving. It's something I felt I was missing. Well, here's a question to ask those in the LGBT community when they came out. You don't ask that to a cis heterosexual person when they came out. That's right. But is that okay to ask? Yeah, it's not an offensive question. And I think the conversation is certainly changing now among certain groups and circles about, well, what is the necessity of coming out? I had a conversation with Shamir Sani for the show, and he was the first person who kind of turned me on to the idea that coming out is for white people. And in our conversation, Shamir said, you know, that he didn't come out, not because he wasn't proud, but because him coming out would have a negative impact, 
potentially life-threatening impact on his family back in Pakistan. Since that conversation with Shamir, I've been thinking a lot about what, who does coming out serve? So that doesn't really answer your question, but coming out is not an offensive thing to ask people. Okay, and I will ask then your story, and I'd love you to walk us through that moment. But before that, how does coming out serve white people? I'm still not necessarily seeing the link. Um, we live in a society, a gay societies, gay cultures, that are predominantly run by white people. So the dominant narrative that's doled out to all people in the LGBTQ community namely comes from white sources. Right. So this dominating narrative that coming out is the apex of the queer experience excludes or obscures the lived experiences of those for whom coming out simply isn't a possibility. And so because the dominant narrative is white, coming out is for white people. They don't often take into account that people can be perfectly proud and not atop a double-decker bus during Pride season that there are many other ways that people express their pride, their intimacy, their love. And I want to make sure that I create space in what I do for those who would prefer to be quietly who they are. Yeah, 100%. And we'll definitely get into the spaces in which you are creating. So do you mind me asking then about your coming out story? Not at all. Um, I remember I called my mom and said, Mom, I think I'm gay. And she said, you think? (laughs) I've known you were gay since you were four. (laughs) And I was like, oh, fine. And uh, she said, you have to tell your dad. And I was most scared about telling him. We were in the car waiting for my sister after school. I think she was playing some sort of sport at that time, volleyball. And um, I said, dad, I'm bi. Because I thought bi was easier than saying gay. And um, there was like this long silence. He was just looking at his PDA, his handheld device. And I said, aren't you going to say anything? You know, getting really upset and dramatic. And he was like, well, I can't change it. What do you want me to say? And I couldn't believe he said that I was so upset. And in retrospect, I was like, why was I so upset? That was like the perfect answer. <laughs> but for some reason, I, I wanted him to fight me about it. You know, I wanted him to be disappointed. I wanted him to react to it. I wanted more than, well, I can't do anything about it. I remember I picked so many fights with him after that. I just admit you ate having a faggot for a son. And he's like, Josh, I never said that. I've never, ever said that to you. But in my head, it didn't make sense that he just accepted me for who I was. And so my last two years at home were very fraught. You're in the education system during this period, and I assume many people, or certainly your tutors and your teachers, were sort of guiding you into a career path to take, right? Mm. What were you thinking? I knew that I wanted to do fashion, and I became absolutely head over heels obsessed with Tom Ford's work at Gucci and Yves Saint Laurent. Like, I could not contain myself. And for my birthday, I got the Tom Ford Tome, which is this beautifully ruinously expensive book that documented his time at the helm of these two storied fashion houses and how he turned each one around. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to go to school for fashion. I'm going to go work in fashion. (laughs) And (laughs) my stepmom was like, I really wish that you would go to school for literature and writing. Like, I wish that you're supposed to become a writer. Right. I, I really enjoyed writing, but I was really taken with 
the world that I felt Tom Ford invited me into through his images and through his fashion. I wanted in some way to be a part of that. So you started taking courses to do that? No, so your... I applied for university in the U.S. I went to Georgia State. That, that was a really tough year. It was a really bad year for me personally. So I left high school um, and went to Georgia State and was sexually assaulted, had an abusive boyfriend. It was just, it was a mess of a year that I, I try not to revisit too often. Okay. But I realized that, that I wasn't going in the right direction by staying in Atlanta. So I hopped in a plane and moved to London. That's the quick version. <laughs> what age were we when you moved? Just turned 19, I think. Well, let's get on to your next chapter then. Chapter three, which is 20 plus. I don't remember most of my early 20s, but let's try. <laughs> you wanted or you were pursuing a fashion career potentially. Yeah. When I left Atlanta, I was like, I'm going to go to London and I'm going to go to LCF, London College of Fashion. Mm. And I came to London without even having applied. But I was like, I just know I'm going to get in. And I got in. Oh. Yeah. And so I went to, okay. I did a year. Well, let's not fast forward. Let's explain how you, how you managed that. I don't know. I was just so, um, I think I must have written about Tom Ford because there weren't any other designers I would have written about. Yeah. And I mean, I was a very good student. So, you know, I, all of my, my grades were great. And um, I'm assuming diversity had something to do with it at that stage as well. Because I think I was one of two black people on the course. Anyway, so I got into LCF. Right. So here we are in London, LCF. You're about to make your dreams come true, potentially. And then I dropped out. Oh, why did you drop out? Um, I didn't feel like I was surrounded by people who really um, were as enraptured with fashion's potential and possibility as I was. And maybe that's because I was on you know, a business course versus communications or design or something more creative. And London was calling. I was having fun. I was working. I had money in my pocket. I just wanted to have an adventure and meet new people and just do fun things. So I dropped out. I decided, you know what, I can always go back to school. It doesn't need to happen right this second. So what were you doing then? I just kept working. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. So I thought, well, I'll just work until I figure it out. Is it fair to say you were lost? Yeah, in retrospect, I was really lost. But having fun. Which again, I think is what most of your 20s is for. <laughs> it's just have fun. Right. I think many listeners would be shocked that this was your journey or process. Mm, for sure. <laughs> for sure. I'm not curious. What was the change, the switch? What was the catalyst? The catalyst for me was when I started working. Um, well, I guess really as soon as I started working for Soho House. This was in 2012. I had like a little mini. I, like, I, I think I became depressed. I didn't know that's what it was at the time, but looking back, I was deeply unhappy. And I remember I woke up one day and I couldn't lift my head off the pillow. And I thought, maybe there's no point in being here, right? Maybe there's no point to my life. And I remember being very scared at that mindset that I was in. And so I talked to my mom and I was like, I have to change my circumstances and I have to change them really quickly. And she said, why don't you go do something you've always wanted to do, like go to Australia? And I was like, yeah, cool. So I applied for a visa and like four weeks later I was in Australia. <laughs> and so that trip to Australia ended up being really healing for me in some ways and that it brought me back 
from a very dark place. But then I moved back to London and really quickly got back to where I was. How do we start bridging the gap between the person you are now and the person you were then when you came back from Australia? Because you feel your purpose is to be of service to others. That's right. The big aha moment. I was recruited to be the director of memberships for this new workspace for creative companies called Second Home. And part of my remit was to put on an amazing program of events. So my job was to figure out what these companies had in common and to connect them to each other. Um, and sometimes those connections weren't immediately obvious, but I was entering into these conversations with these incredible entrepreneurs and founders and who were very passionate about what they were doing. And one of the events that we put on was coming out as an entrepreneur. And I was listening to these people talk about being out in the workplace. And I was astonished that people weren't out in the workplace. I was like, what do you mean? So I did some research and the Human Rights Campaign had released research the year before, which said that 62% of college graduates went back into the closet when they entered the workforce. And I mean, I was beside myself. I was, I was with my friend Barry at the time. And I was like, I have never ever once considered not being Josh Rivers when I walk into a room. Mm. And it really dawned on me that that was such an immense privilege that something in my life had to have gone right if I could walk into a room with such confidence and not question my right to be there. So Barry and I said, well, what are we going to do about it? So we set up an organization called Series Q. And the idea of Series Q was that we would put on events and networking opportunities for LGBTQ people who were working in startups. And so we did it. And it was a smashing success. And I was hosting events where I was interviewing these amazing and accomplished entrepreneurs and business leaders. And I was like, I started to feel really good about myself and people started responding in kind. So there was a very clear indication I was moving in the right direction. At the same time, I started writing for Gay Times, just kind of doing occasional articles. And I saw that they were advertising for a marketing manager. Um, and so, you know, I, I threw myself at Gay Times and said, I can do this. And I sold this big dream of this big, diverse platform and how I was going to do it. And I pulled together all of my experience and knowledge that I'd earned from working over the past decade and put it into a proposal. And I, and I got the job. So I moved out of, you know, membership work and into media. Amazing. You mentioned something must have gone right in your past for you to never have ever considered not being the amazing queer black man you are. Yeah, it was after that event coming out as an entrepreneur that I um, called my dad and I said, I just want to say thank you for your initial response to my coming out. It's taken me a really long time to understand that that was a, that was a really great response and I'm sorry I reacted the way that I did. And what did he say to that? He just said thank you. <laughs> He's not a very expressive person. Well, I wonder where you're love for words come from then if it's not from your dad and the way he communicates is it from your mum oh my mum yeah do you yeah. mind speaking more about that what does your mum do how how have you got it from her oh she's a writer she loves language she she's a virgo that says a lot <laughs> <laughs> you know she's written books and she writes and she's a really she's become a really wonderful woman yeah and she's kind of the template, the blueprint, rather, for how one evolves in themselves, you know, because we didn't have a great relationship growing up. But she realized that there were things in her life that she needed to make peace with and that she treated me, my sister, unkindly. And so she's made amends. She saw a problem and she fixed it. 
Um, and so I guess in many ways, I just kind of followed the example that she set. So speaking of problem, and I think if anyone was to Google you, unfortunately, what does pop up in the front page is your very public dismissal. That's right. There's not a lot to be said that hasn't already been said, or am I wrong in saying that? Is there anything you want to address? Um, yeah, I joined Gay Times absolutely convinced that I could change this organization from within. And in many ways I did. I did help show the team what was possible if we applied ourselves, if we thought more expansively about who our audience is, was, could be. And we did a lot of really great work together. And then of course the story broke and my old tweets were uncovered and weaponized and I rightfully was fired and there was public outrage and I went into hiding. And it was in the aftermath of that, queer black people really rallied around me. Um, you know, and so Busy Being Black was born in the aftermath of a great personal trauma. Um, when I was fired, I thought to myself, all of this work that I've done to become useful and to live in my purpose is all for nothing, right? Here I am on my couch crying into the cushions. And I realized that was really the wrong way of looking at it. <laughs> it wasn't for nothing. Obviously, I had achieved what I had achieved in such a short amount of time because I discovered who I wanted to become. And that work doesn't go away because an older version of you comes back to bite you in the ass, right? Yeah. And the big lesson I learned, one of the big lessons, there were so many, was that your past isn't something that can just be divorced from your present self, right? You can't just forget about who you were. Um, that young, angry man is a part of me still, right? He needs to be looked after. He needs to know that, that he's loved, that he has love to give, that he has purpose and meaning and that his life matters. And so I have to remind myself all the time. And part of the, the way that I remind myself is by doing the work that I do. I never feel as full as when I'm in conversation with another black person, particularly another queer black person, about their life and their hopes and their dreams. Do you mind explaining what Busy Being Black is? Sure. So Busy Being Black is a podcast. I center conversations with those who have learned and are learning to thrive at the intersection of their identities. In a nod to my own experience, I want to get beyond your Google search results. I want to create a space of vulnerability, of wisdom, of exploration. And there, there are really meaningful deep dives into the interior lives of queer black people predominantly. I, I do have conversations with people outside our immediate sexuality. It's beautiful, it's, it's a healing project. You have written as something that was a fond memory maybe, or something you read or heard as an adult, Bayard Rustin? Bayard Rustin. The civil rights activist. Yes. Talk to me about this. So Bayard Rustin was one of the chief civil rights strategists so he was the right-hand man to Martin Luther King, right? He's one of the OGs. He organized the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Of the March on Washington, the man who organized this whole thing, Mr. Bayard Rustin. He was also an openly gay black man, refused to go in the closet. And because of his refusal to be silent about his sexuality, he wasn't able to take up any leadership roles in the civil rights movement. And when 
I was introduced to his story, a shock of electricity went through my body. I thought, here is this man who is smart, clever, loves to write, is a thinker, he's an intellectual. He's black, he's gay. He really gave himself to the civil rights movement and to his community. Until really recently as well, his story, his name had been rubbed out from history. Bayard Rustin is really one of my black blueprints. He's one of the people I look to. I have his letters and I revisit them often. I think he, more than anyone, has shown me who I can become. Okay, well, Josh, before I do let you go, I do have a couple more questions. What, and I know it's difficult because it's often an ongoing process, but what is the legacy? What are you aiming for here when it comes down to the work you do, the community you're building? I want to, sometimes I joke and I say I want to be the next Oprah. I want to do for queer people of color and queer black people specifically what Oprah did for women. Right? She really centered their experiences, made them feel special and seen. I want queer Black people to know that they are perfect, they are loved, their lives matter. And I want to use my voice, my platforms, my money, my energy to center our stories, our experiences. So Busy Being Black right now is a podcast, but I really see myself owning my own production company and commissioning documentaries. Um, I want to run a creative agency that is staffed by queer black and brown people. I want to set up a community center and restaurant for local communities. I just, I really want to give back. I want my legacy to be an army of queer black and brown people who believe in themselves. So watch this space. I think you are definitely on the road to potentially becoming the first Josh Rivers. I always end with this final question. If there's one book you can gift, what book would it be? Oh my God. This is really tough. What is the, what is the book that's had the most profound? Ah, you know what? I'm going to recommend something a bit off-piste, perhaps. Um, Louis de Bernier has a trilogy that begins with the war on Don Emanuel's Nether Parts, followed by Senor Vivo and the Coca Lords and finishes with The Troublesome Offspring of Cardinal Guzman. And I first read the trilogy in 2015 and was absolutely electrified by this story. The protagonist is Dio, short for Dionoso, And he is this kind of warrior person who believes in saving his town and the people in the town from the drug lords. And it's this kind of three-part epic that really reminded me how much I love love and how much I love this idea of being of service to other people. And it was a really unexpected place to find that fire was in reading the story about Dionoso and, and his passion for protecting his people. And so I would gift that trilogy and say, read this, be enchanted. Josh, it's been an absolute pleasure. How can we find you in the World Wide Web? And when we do, is there anything you'd like us to do? So I have a new website, busybeingblack.com. And Busy Being Black, the podcast is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And I would like you to listen. Just choose an episode, listen to the show, open your heart, 
And importantly, just share it with other people. And even people you think might need to hear something like Busy Being Black. Let them know that there is a soft place for them to land should they need it. Guys, as always, do comment, do review, do share, do subscribe because it really does help us grow. Today's episode was produced by Ade Bambala. Sound designed by Chris Arise. And if you'd like to be featured on Stories That Stick, then please do get in touch.